Welcome back to Money and Meaning, stories of unlocking the potential of global markets for impact. I'm your host, Alex Kravitz. On this week's episode, I interviewed Beth Bafford, the Vice President of Syndications and Strategy at Calvert Impact Capital. Over the past couple episodes, we've talked about the history of impact investing and an introduction to the field of impact investing. In this episode, we get into the details of one of the most common questions I get, which is, how do you start impact investing? What does it actually look like in practice for somebody who, who doesn't have a family office or, or run a foundation? Beth has long been a thought leader in the space and has been extremely transparent over the years with how she has invested her personal assets for impact. So I was thrilled when she agreed to join me for this discussion. We talk about the first steps she took to shift her portfolio, her process across asset types, areas where she still wishes there were better impact offerings, and her most impactful investments to date. Let's jump into the conversation. Beth, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks, Alex. The most frequent question that, that we get from our listeners is always like, so how does someone go about actually doing this work? Is it exclusive to foundations and family offices and institutional investors or um, are retail investors able to, to start impact investing as well? Um, and you recently wrote a piece, or I, I think originally wrote it about four years ago, but recently updated a piece where you walked through your process of aligning your your portfolio with your values. And um, I'd like to to dive into that a little bit and how you went about going through that process. And you know, ideally for for someone who's listening, if they're interested in taking the same journey, they can use it as a a roadmap or at least a jumping off point. Um, but before we get into that, can you tell me a little bit about your role with Calvert and how you got started impact investing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I have been at Calvert Impact Capital for over six years now and landed there after a kind of early career in bouncing really in between the social, public, and private sectors. So started my career out of college in financial services quickly pivoted to become a community organizer on the 08 Obama campaign, um, which was something very different, but was an important kind of uh, moment for me and uh, in, in how I grew up from a career perspective. Um, worked in the administration for a little while for the federal government, um, and then decided to go back to school, to grad school, um, went to Fuqua School of Business to really try to determine where these two worlds intersected. So I had been in the private sector and then I'd been in the public sector. Um, I love the rigor and intellectual challenges of the private sector. I loved the heart of the public sector um, and wanted to really go back to school to explore where those two overlap. Um, And in that process, best decision I made, I met Professor Kathy Clark, who is now a a leading professor of impact investing across the country and across the world. Um, I basically didn't leave her side (laughs) for two years um, and just became her her minion and did anything she asked me to. um, But she really introduced me to this world, um, introduced me to a lot of speakers in, in, in her classes and people in the industry. Um, and that's really where I kind of found and fell in love with the field of impact investing. We, we actually, we had Kathy on uh, a couple months ago to talk about the great work that she's doing with COVID cap. 
out of Duke. So she is a, a, a great thought leader in the space and a good person to introduce you to, to the field. Absolutely. She is a, a force and most importantly, just an amazing human being. Um, so it has been a, a pleasure to, to know and work with her over the years. And what do you do now with, at Calvert? So I lead our syndications and strategy teams, which also encompasses kind of communications and impact measurement. So um, I, I, a little bit of everything, um, but really my work is focused on how we think about kind of off-balance sheet mechanisms to get money moving more efficiently into the communities that we serve. So, you know, similar to what we're going to talk about today, um, there you know, is a lot of interest in impact investing. There's a lot of momentum, but there's been very little investment in the infrastructure that it takes to actually move people's dollars from their retirement accounts or from their savings accounts into the hands of a small business owner in a low-income community or uh, to a solar project in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and so our work and, and my work focuses on how do we kind of build and create those market mechanisms to get money moving much more efficiently and a much greater scale to solve some of the global challenges that we see. Yeah, I think if there is any uh, silver lining to you know some of what's going on right now with our society, some of the challenges that, that we're facing, it's that people are seem to be thinking more about how they're capital aligns with their personal values. So hopefully that, you know, there'll be more and more interest in, in making the move. Um, what, what led to your decision when you decided to make this shift a few years ago? Yeah, so I had been in, had been working at Calvert for a couple of years um, and been talking about our work. Um, I had owned a community investment node, of course, our, our product, but um, had been, you know, like, go to conferences, I speak on panels, talking about this world, and then had realized that I was not walking the talk, uh, as they say, uh, and hadn't looked at just my basic savings account um, and retirement accounts to understand where they were invested and decided to do something about it. So wanted to make sure that every dollar of mine, no matter what account it sat in, um, was working towards the world that I wanted to see. And you mentioned your your savings account and your retirement accounts. What what kind of resources does the average person need to get started investing in in impact products? Do you need to have, you know, six or seven figures of investments? What's the threshold to to get started out? Uh, Twenty dollars. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, no, seriously, all right. At least our our product, and I'm not here to sell our product, but you know the community investment note is available for twenty dollars online. But more broadly, we know that it is a privilege to have any investable assets. Um, I know that is is a huge privilege to have assets that are invested for savings or for retirement. Um, but if you do in any amount, you have power, and you have the power to invest in companies, in funds, in a financial system, and an economy that supports your values. Um, so you don't need to have six figures, seven figures. Anybody can do it, um, and they can do it today. And so I think that's been a really big you know, reason why I wanted to, to put my journey out into the ether to say, you know, I used to be in that camp of saying, oh, I don't have enough money for this to matter. So, you know, why, why bother? And, you know, like I mentioned in the piece, if that's it's similar to voting, right? Like if if everybody thinks that their vote doesn't matter, or if people think that their individual purchasing decisions don't matter, um, or what car they drive, or how much plastic they use, 
um, every single decision we make as people has an inherent kind of power structure behind it. You are supporting some piece of the economy by making that decision. And that is just as true for your investment dollars, your savings dollars, your checking accounts. Every dollar that is in your possession has power, just like all those other consumer decisions do. So when you made the decision, where did you start? What was the first step in in making the move? Yeah, so the first step, like a lot of others, was just kind of understanding what I owned. So, you know, we could kind of know what you own to own what you own. Uh, I wanted to know what I owned in my accounts. Um, I will say, you know, big disclosure, my financial advisor, I'm lucky to have a financial advisor. My financial advisor is my mother. Um, (laughs) And so I am not typically a client that most people would pay a lot of attention to, but she has to because she is my mother. (laughs) Um, so, uh, I went to her and said, you know, I want to know what's in my accounts. I want to, you know, I want to see the underlying holdings of the mutual funds that are in my accounts. Um, and I want to just understand what I am supporting with my dollars. Mm -hmm. Um, and then once I did that, um, you know, the easiest place to start is with your mutual funds, your public equities. Most people have their accounts, you know, sitting in in either passive or active mutual funds, And so wanted to look at that asset class and say, you know, how do I go from mutual fund that, you know, that I didn't pick that is sitting in a broad basket of public companies to a mutual fund that has a strategy that I believe in that is incorporating things like environmental, social and governance factors into their decision making um, and really looking at corporate practices to understand, you know, where to invest. So started there. Um, which is, I think, where a lot of people end up starting. What were you looking for when you started evaluating funds? Yeah, so it's really two things. One was who is the manager, um, and two was you know what are the companies that they are owning. And on the manager side, the reason why that's important is because when you buy into a mutual fund, right, the managers can buy and sell securities, buy and sell companies anytime without telling you or doing it and notifying you. And so their strategy is really what you're buying into. And so I wanted to make sure that the managers that I was supporting with my money was, uh, you know, had a strategy that incorporated um, ESG factors or other factors. The ideal for me, what I was really looking for first were were companies uh, or managers who were focused on active solutions. So there are some funds out there and some, you know, and some publicly traded companies out there that are solely investing in things like renewable energy solutions. And there are enough public companies to, to, to create strategies around that. So that was my, you know, number one focus is, is how do I find companies that are actively creating solutions and managers who are supporting those companies? The second tier is those who are looking at corporate practices um, and understanding, you know, which corporate practices are doing things like, you know, ensuring diversity in their leadership and on their board, fair labor standards, safe and and fair supply chains, the products that they make. Um, You know, I think one of the challenges with this space is that there's kind of a bifurcation around between policies and what the companies do, you know, in terms of what, what their environmental or social policies are, and then what the companies actually make and sell, right? Yeah. And to me, both of those are really important and they can't be um, separated. So you can have, uh, you know, I, I pick on 
Johnson and Johnson in my piece um, because I just it, have been very frustrated by their their sales of a product that has dramatically hurt children and families over the years. They could have a diverse board. They could have you know fair wages. They could have great benefits. They could have parental leave. They could have a low environmental carbon footprint. But if they're selling talcum powder that is killing people, mm-hmm. um, we can't we can't separate that. And so, you know, that is a big piece of it is is looking at, you know, both how the managers are evaluating them on their quote unquote ESG scores, but also how the managers approach, you know, certain industries, products, um, activities that, you know, they feel are aligned or not aligned. How'd you get to that point? Because I imagine you're not diving into every company and their supply chain and, and their governance factors. And so I guess, how'd you get to that point where you're comfortable with the the managers of the funds? Yeah. So I, I usually go for managers that are explicitly mission driven managers. Um, so, so every fund under their organization is all mission driven. Is that what you mean by that? Yes. So, okay. um, so they are, are managers that were created to do this kind of investing. Um, so examples are PAX, um, Parnassus, Calvert, the other, the other Calvert. You know, I think these are responsible investing firms that manage money across different, you know, geographies or different, you know, large cap, small cap mid-cap growth value, um, but all within under an umbrella of a brand and a firm that is built around sustainability. Um, and so that's where I, I tend to go first because I just, I, I believe that they, because of their brand and because of their founding and their, their values, that they are creating products that are more aligned, more likely to be aligned. I start there. Um, and then I look at the individual funds and strategies. Um, I typically look first at the top 10 holdings. That to me gives some some indication of, of how the strategy looks in practice. So every fund, everybody can, you can go online, you can go to Morningstar, or you can go to the fund's website and every fund, mutual fund will show you their top 10 holdings at least. Um, and you can just look at the companies and see if those are companies that, that you know, you think you want to hold. I have personal, from a you know, personal perspective, I don't really like owning big pharmaceutical companies. Um, I don't like holding a lot of big banks. Um, I don't like holding certainly oil, oil and gas or private prisons or uh, companies that are, have contributed to the opioid crisis, um, right? The typical quote unquote, you know, sin stocks, tobacco, firearms, all the, you know, are, are things that you know, I don't feel comfortable holding. My list is a little longer than than most. Um, <laughs> but so I look at the top 10 holdings and see, you know, what, what that looks like. Um, and then most financial advisors now can, you know, if you are, or platforms can give you a, essentially a, a list of every underlying holding in all of your funds. So that's another thing, you know, when you're getting started, when you're looking at kind of what you own, um, you can ask your advisor or whatever platform you use to invest. Um, just say, can I please get a list of every stock that is owned by the mutual funds that I hold? Um, and you can look at that list. And, and if you see an oil and gas company on there that you don't want to own, then you can go find out which fund it's in and see if that's a strategy that you're comfortable with. And you mentioned active funds and the the active versus passive debate has become kind of a, a sticking point in the field. Can you can you explain what the differentiation is and, and why you 
you know, whether you have a preference one way or the other. Yeah, absolutely. So an active fund means it's actively managed, which means there's people that are making stock picks that are they're deciding to buy and sell companies based on their own strategy um, and their own kind of thinking. Passive funds are funds that just follow an index. So there is a basket of securities or, you know, a, a basket of companies in an index and that fund usually follows uh, that index and so kind of buys and sells depending on what's in that index. And so there's not individual stocks that are picked or, or you know, bought or sold on an ongoing basis based on the decision of the manager. The benefit of passively managed funds is that they are lower cost, right? They're set up at the beginning and then basically follow an index. And so there's not a lot of, of overhead. Um, so the fees are lower on those funds. Um, the issue from a ESG or impact perspective is that because of that, there's not an ability for kind of manager discretion and it really depends on the quality of the index. So, you know, we're starting to see more indices created that incorporate ESG or incorporate certain um, values in the creation of the index that makes passive funds more palpable. But in general, you know, it's hard to be kind of a, a shareholder advocate in a passive strategy. And so, it, you know, it, it just, there's less power that the manager has to you know, exert influence over decision-making at companies. Um, and so I tend to, to prefer actively managed strategies, uh, particularly on the ESG side, so that those values are being incorporated through both buying and selling of stocks, but also through shareholder advocacy, which essentially means that, you know, because the fund owns the stocks, they can, they can vote and make decisions um, as a shareholder of a company. Do you choose individual stocks too, or are you mostly investing in in funds? I do choose individual stocks too, mostly just because I like to um, <laughs> I like to reward good corporate behavior <laughs> um, with my tiny, tiny purchases of individual <laughs> shares of stocks. Um, but then I can say I'm a shareholder um, and I can mm-hmm. tweet about it. <laughs> so, uh, but. I do like, or or if there's a particularly you know bad decision, I I also try to make sure to divest. But um, but I do. I I am a huge fan of Hannon Armstrong. They are a, a now a publicly traded company. They they invest in sustainability and sustainable infrastructure. That is, I think, one of the you know the few kind of pure play sustainable investing companies that is public. And so I own their stock. And I own a, a few other uh, single shares. I, I recently bought a kind of a holding company that has a bunch of kind of sustainable and healthy brands in it. Now that I am a, a mother of four, I, uh, <laughs> I, I support um, healthy and organic uh, options for, for children. And there, I found a company that owns a lot of those brands. Um, so I wanted to support them. Let's talk about cash. That uh, seems like it's become more and more of a, a focal point among the industry is an area where you can generate impact and, and it's, uh, you know, anyone listening to the show will have a, a bank account. So what does an impact investment look like in cash? Yeah. So, you know, I think people are really doing self audits on, you know, what are, what are our dormant kind of areas of power that we have not activated for good? Um, and your checking account and your savings account is one of those things. And, 
you know, I think particularly given everything that's happening around just a broad awakening to the structural racism and inequities that exist in our financial system, I think people realize that one of the ways that they're supporting a financial system that has been, you know, built on uh, structural inequities is where they hold their cash and that there is a better alternative. There, There is a way to uh, to shift your money, where you hold your your money, to support your community or to support a community of of individuals and businesses that are more aligned with your values. And so, just just as a primer, um, when you put money into a bank, that money doesn't just sit there; <laughs> it it is lent, it is used and kind of lent out to somewhere. So, you know that is how banks make money. They take your cash. Um, they lend it out at a higher rate than they're paying you, and they make the spread. So they make the difference between what they lend to a small business or a big business or a project and what they pay you on your deposits. That is you know, the, the basic business model of banking. So your cash is being used for that lending. If your cash is sitting at a big bank, that money is being lent mostly to big companies, right? The, the borrowers of the large banks out there or the big, big projects, you know, a big thing around the Dakota Access Pipeline, right, was who, who is banking that? Who, who are banking these big mining projects? Who are banking all of these things? Because someone is financing that activity. Um, if you are a client of a big bank, your money is being used to finance that activity, if you put your money, you put your cash into a bank, a community bank, a community development financial institution, a minority deposit institution, that money is being used to lend to folks in your community. So it's being used to build affordable housing. It's being used to support a small business locally. Um, it's being used to uh, support the development of a real estate project locally. And so not only, in my subjective view, not only is the money being used more productively for kind of good benefit, um, but it's also being used locally. It's also being kind of circulated in your local economy um, versus going who knows where um, to who knows what kind of, of activity. And so, you know, one of the really basic things you can do is to move your cash. Um, and I, I write this in my piece, but you know, it is not easy. <laughs> <laughs> you would think that would be that would be one of the easier options. You, you would think, um, but as <laughs> people know, and uh, you know, your bank accounts are linked to a million things these days, right? They're linked to your Venmo account and your PayPal account <laughs> and your automatic payments of your mortgage and your, you know, your credit card payments and all. You know, everything is linked to your bank accounts, and so when you change bank accounts. You have to undo and redo all of that. So it is not easy. Um, but my husband and I decided to make that move a few years ago. We moved our money from a large bank to our local CDFI called City First Bank in DC. Um, and we now have our personal checking and savings accounts with City First. So our money is being used in in the DC area to support small businesses, to support um, affordable housing to support community facilities, things like community centers and arts and education and health centers. And, you know, I feel much better about where my money sleeps at night um, now that I know that it is there. Do you, would you recommend a CDFI specifically or, or would like a local credit union 
work? How, how do you know, I guess, with a CDFI, you know, right, that that money, uh, what is it, 60% of the money will be lent into low to moderate income communities? Is that what distinguishes a CDFI? So you know that money is going into, you know, to, to supporting the local community. What about with like a credit union or, or a different type of banking institution? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you can certainly look at the kind of work that those organizations do. Um, hugely supportive of credit unions, in addition to CDFIs and MDIs, um, whatever is easiest, I would say, um, to do. You know, it, it is certainly an improvement. But to your point, a community development financial institution, a CDFI, means that they are certified as such by the U.S. Treasury. Um, and they are required to lend at least 60%, most do a lot more, but lend at least 60% into low and moderate income communities so that they can maintain that certification of a CDFI. So you know the money is being put to work in low and moderate income communities in your in your area. Got it. Um, what about fixed income? Did you, do you have fixed income products? It, it seems like that's an area where there's a more direct line between your investment and what it's doing. Like you can really, you know, if you're investing in like a municipal bond, you know exactly where that money is is going. Did you switch over any of your investments into fixed income and, and what did you find in that asset type? Yeah. So I think there are some really interesting things in the fixed income space that are available to retail investors. So, um, you know, one is, is community development financial institution CDFI notes. Um, and there are a lot of them now. And so, you know, th- those are really great products um, and are usually have low minimums to actively support community development finance. There's also kind of, in, similar to public equities, there are also a lot of public fixed income funds that are ESG managed. Um, and so I think, you know, that's, that's something that uh, you can take a look at. Similarly to the public equity side, looking at how ESG managers are looking at the fixed income space. Um, And then there's the green bond space. So like you said, there's a pretty clear use of proceeds when you're issuing bonds. And so you can look at, you know, who is issuing green bonds and how they're using those proceeds to support, you know, the sustainable energy or or kind of renewable energy or sustainable transition. Um, So I saw, you know, a news article that Apple was releasing a green bond a few years ago and, and called my mom and said, you know, is there a way for me to get some of that? Um, and she said, yes. So she got a part of Apple's green bond for me. That one, the one that I, I purchased was being used to um, basically green all of or kind of update all of their facilities um, so that, you know, Apple's global operations was more carbon efficient. And uh, so I felt comfortable with that use of proceeds. Um, green bonds are another area where there is, kind of, you know, a lot of marketing. So certainly be be aware of, of how the proceeds are being used, but that's what I felt comfortable with. Another area that you can look at are, like you mentioned, the municipal bonds. Um, and I think there's, there's varying levels of transparency in terms of what those proceeds are used for. Um, most municipalities will issue general obligation bonds, um, which means that they can use it for general purposes. So it's a little difficult to know what that is used for. But you know, some will provide more transparency and say, you know, they are building new public schools or they are building new, you know, health facilities or, you know, something to, to get a sense for whether it's, you know, repairing a bridge or building a school. Um, and you can, you know, get a sense for, for if you're interested. So, I, you know, I think that's an area. I, I, I know there are some people that are working more actively on 
increasing transparency in municipal bonds and and how to to look at them from an impact perspective. But that's an area that I'm certainly keeping an eye on to see if we can if there's improvements in the year, coming years. And we're we're getting into asset classes that are probably less available to to a retail investor. But but just quickly to to cover all our bases. Um, what about what about private investments or real assets? What does an impact investment look like in in those asset types? Yeah, absolutely. So on the private side, a lot of things do require you to be an accredited investor because of the Jobs Act in I think 2010. Um, mm. There are uh, ways to engage and invest in directly into private companies. And I have I've done a little bit of that on the side. Um, I'm a, a I'm terrified of the stock market, so um, I just wanted to diversify a little bit outside of the stock market, um, uh, particularly in, like as you see what's happening in the last couple months, mm-hmm. where like the whole world is on fire, and yet the stock market it's is still going so up. So strange! It's completely divorced from the economy. It seems like I. It's it's very strange. It is very strange. That's a separate um, conversation. So. <laughs> <laughs> separate conversation. But um, because of that, um, I uh, am a fan of taking some of my money out of the stock market and investing it more in more directly. And so have done that into a few companies, um, some local small businesses that were raising money, and then some that I found through different platforms. But uh, there are now more and more of those kinds of platforms where individuals can go on and look at private companies and buy a piece of a, of a company that is raising capital. And then you can evaluate the company directly, right? Who is it? Who runs it? What are they trying to do? Um, so I look for companies that are, um, you know, have an explicit social or environmental purpose and look for, you know, very small dollar contributions to those companies so that, you know, I have a little bit of diversification outside of the market. Mm-hmm. What about real uh, real estate and other real assets? Are you invested in all in that at all in that space? Yeah, so I did kind of an experimental investment a few years ago. Uh, now, probably five or six years ago, into Fundrise. Fundrise is a online platform that is trying to kind of disintermediate um, real estate investing. Uh, they're based here in DC, and uh, they basically raise money from investors. I think they have over like 150,000 investors now. And they invest into uh, a variety of product types of um, senior debt, mezzanine debt, and equity into real estate projects across the country. Um, And their kind of whole thesis is that they are able to find kind of smaller projects that fall outside of the traditional commercial real estate investing space, um, but still get a lot of value. They are very good investors. Um, I would say on the impact side, I have not been as thrilled. Um, I wish they had more of an impact lens in how they invest in real estate. Um, I was hoping that they were going to do so last year when they launched an opportunity zone strategy, but didn't really see a lot of uh, of an impact strategy there. So that was really a an investment I made into a platform because I was curious about what it was. Um, it's actually performed quite well, but I, you know, I think from a values perspective, it's not high on the list. Right. And to, the, to that point, you mentioned in the article that your portfolio is not 100% values aligned um, and that there are certain areas where you wish that there were more or, or better options. What, what are the areas that you wish had, had uh, better impact offerings? 
Yeah, a lot. And I think this is really relevant for people who's, who most of their money is in long-term savings vehicles. So um, for example, my, my 401k, my kids' 529 plans, right? A, a lot of our savings these days goes into those two vehicles to save for retirement or save for higher education. And when you go into a plan like that, you have, you have only the options that they give you. Um, you can't pick your own securities. Um, and so uh, luckily, because we are covered in back capital, we you know recently changed over our 401k plans. We had better options in terms of the um, ESG strategies. Um, but for things like a 529 plan, we're beholden to the options that are provided and they're usually very generic. To, to that end, how are you measuring the impact of your investments? Are, are you receiving metrics that allow you to track progress and, and reevaluate and and reallocate your money if needed. Um, I imagine that you know this is a this would be a particularly challenging area for like a retail investor who isn't working in the space. So how is that? How has the measurement and uh, you know impact metrics been evolved over the last few years? Yeah, it's it's a great question, and I think this is an area where it's difficult because the financial fundamentals and the impact fundamentals are not necessarily aligned. And that creates, I think, friction and, and challenges that, you know, we as an industry need to figure out. And, and what I mean by that is that, you know, as an investor, particularly an investor who is younger and further away from retirement, right, most people will tell you, put your money into strategies that you believe in and let it sit there, mm-hmm. right? Um, invest for the long term. Don't try to time the market. Um, you know, it, you will see long-term appreciation if you, you know, buy and hold. And so, you know, that's what most financial advisors will tell you to do um, and make sense logically. The challenge is, is that if you want to course correct from an impact or values perspective, it is difficult to figure out how and when to do that. So if I became underwhelmed or frustrated by a manager um, particularly in the public equity space, and wanted to exit that manager. If I if I didn't like their impact reporting, or if I didn't like their how they were implementing an ESG strategy, or if they started buying a lot of companies that I didn't believe in, you know how best to to exit that position. You know you have to consider you know where the market is, if it's up or down that day. Um, you know what capital gains that will create. Um, what what are the tax implications of that? Right there, there are a lot of considerations that you have to think about when kind of coming in or out of of investments. And so I think that's where, at least on the public equity side or the public fixed income side, really trying to find managers that align with your values and that you believe in um, and believe are doing really good work is even more important. Because then you can kind of weather the storm with them and, and know that they have your your best interest or your values in mind when they're making decisions. If you're trying to, you know, push a certain manager to do that or to, to monitor someone for a little while, it's then harder, I think, to kind of come in and out of investments very frequently. That's on the public side. On the private side, it's a little easier, particularly if you're looking at things like the you know, the, the CDFI notes or the, you know, some of those more direct um, community development products that are available or climate-related products that are available, then you can really look at how are they measuring and managing impact? What is that creating um, in terms of both outputs and outcomes? 
um, you know, is this money being used in a way that's that is productive and is aligned with my values? And I think, you know, it it is hard to do on a portfolio basis. Um, there are folks like Matthew Weatherly White who who built IPAR and some other kind of analytical tools that try to allow folks to to manage impact on an ongoing basis. But it's certainly not pervasive yet and and pretty ad hoc if you don't have a a tool or a uh, approach like that. Yeah, the tax implications are interesting. I had never considered that. It's a uh... An important factor. Um, what are you getting from like a mutual fund from one of these managers who, who is focused on on impact? What is that? What does that impact report look like? Yeah, so we're starting to see them look a little bit more impressive. I would say um, we we are starting to see um, snapshots that are leveraging data sources like Sustainalytics and others to look at particular pieces of their kind of. ESG score, um, look at things like diversity, look at, you know, areas of exposure. And so there are, if you, you know, and I think I linked to one of the Morningstar reports for the Brown Advisory Sustainable Growth Fund uh, as an example where you can really look through that profile that is data-driven and see all the different kind of pieces of impact of, of the underlying portfolio at least so that there's more transparency. Again, there, there's not a lot of standardization in language. There's not standardization in what they're measuring. There's not standardization, even standardization in approach, but at least it's providing more transparency. And so you can see what is what is in there. You can see the impact it's having. And then you can, like I said from the beginning, kind of make a decision whether or not you want to be invested in that strategy. Yeah, on our last episode, Rahana mentioned that you know, with the with the E, with the environmental stuff, and and with the G, it's it's fairly quantifiable. But with the the S, with the social side, it, it hasn't gotten there yet. And you know, maybe to your earlier point about some of the racial injustices and inequities that have been laid bare by the the pandemic, maybe there'll be more of a focus on on figuring out how to quantify the social impact of of those investments in those funds. Yeah, and one of the things that I think is important to understand and recognize is that, you know, values are hard to quantify, right? right? Like, and, and they're hard to compare, right? You can compare dollars and cents. You can compare performance of one fund versus another. Um, you can't really make a direct comparison between a mutual fund that is working to, to invest in re- renewable energy and one that is supporting companies that have fair labor practices. Both of those things are good, they're different, and you can't really find metrics to compare them directly to each other. Um, this is why I really have liked the B score, the B Corporation's score of companies when you become a B Corp. They have done an incredible job of kind of breaking down all the different aspects of how a company operates and rolling it up into these five categories of activity, understanding that some companies are going to be really strong on one or two and relatively weak on others. And that it's just about the transparency and what's happening within the corporation that people are looking for. And you can dig into that score and understand, based on what you care about, what what kind of practices they're they're going on. You know, because I, you know, we would never want something to spit out an objective score if you care about racial justice and I care about climate. And trying to say that one of those is, you know, they are both very needed. Um, right. 
one of those is not better than the other. They're different. And so I think that's why a lot of the efforts around impact measurement and management and transparency has been around methodology and approach, um, not on trying to put dollars and cents behind a outcome. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think so much of this is personal because it really, you know, what you're doing is trying to align your investments with your own values based on wh- what those are. Um, and my values might be different than your values, but but there are products out there that can help you get there. Um, and so I think that's just something to keep in mind as we think about, you know, all the data and analytics, everything that's all really important. But what it should bubble up into is just the ability for people to make better decisions, um, not necessarily to dictate what those decisions should be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to your point about the impossibility of comparing across industries, it seems like most people, when they're making impact investments, are trying to maximize one social or environmental outcome while minimizing negative externalities in general. Um, Do you have a particular social or environmental impact area that you've focused your portfolio towards? So I don't, and I want to. I would say this is where I have a lot more work to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the two massive challenges that we are facing are structural inequity, racism and sexism in our economy, um, and climate change. Mm-hmm. And I think those are, are two kind of cross-sector, intersectional, massive problems um, that, that we as a, as a world, as a human race, need to come together to solve. Um, and so what I'm trying to do now, now that I've kind of gotten to a place where I feel like I'm generically values aligned, what I'm trying to do now is do a much more robust kind of racial equity audit of my portfolio, a gender equity audit of my portfolio, and an environmental footprint audit to see, uh, again, just starting with what is the baseline? Mm-hmm. You know, where, where am I today? Um, what systems and people am I supporting? Who am I giving power to? Who am I giving wealth to by the decisions I've made in my portfolio? And how do I start to shift that? So I'm, you know, giving wealth away and giving power away to communities that have not accessed it. And I think that's that's the next frontier for me. Um, and I'm ho- I'll hopefully I'll, I'll write about it uh, going forward. <laughs> we'll have to bring you back on in, in a year <laughs> to have have part two of the conversation. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but I think with all of this, it is a is an ongoing piece of work to make sure that you know every single decision I make, every purchase, every investment, every decision is supporting a system that is um, empowering others, not excluding others. And I think that's you know a challenge that I'm trying to take on personally um, and that I know a lot of people in your community care a lot about. And I think that the fact that we are forced to right now to be at home makes us feel even more helpless to solve these problems. And so I think everybody is right now looking at everything that they're doing and saying, how can I do this better or differently? Um, and so I think there is a real moment for us to to make sure people understand that you play a role in, a, in, in an economy that has not been fair. Um, so what can we all do to make it more fair? Yeah, that's that's great. What do you think has been your most impactful investment? Do you have one that you're you're really excited about or, or proud of that you'd like to to share? 
Um, well, I have to say my community investment note, obviously. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I have been a, a note holder for a long time, and I have the great privilege of watching my colleagues manage our portfolio um, in a way that has just been incredible. And we do a lot of work, you know, across sectors, across geographies, um, and the investment officers on our team are always looking for new ways to be creative in, in solving problems through our financial system. So that certainly is a very proud holding of my portfolio. And then on the direct side, um, I would say I'm a kind of angel investor in a company that is trying to disrupt the payday lending industry. Hmm. And I that's an area where I feel very passionate about. Uh, you know, I think that there have been a lot of of companies and industries that have taken severe advantage of people and put them in horrible situations through very userous uh, lending. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think that particularly with the advent of so much technology in underwriting and, you know, risk modeling and and a lot of that that is happening, um, there are ways to do responsible consumer lending in a much better way. I would be remiss if I didn't ask, you know, the whole the whole concept of market rate return is fairly fuzzy, um, especially outside the public markets. But given that you're four plus years into this experiment, are you what have you seen in terms of the the, the return on investment? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say the majority of my money is still in the stock market and ESG managers are outperforming now. I think, you know, it always depends on where things are. I have a firm belief that they will outperform over the long run because they are investing in just better companies. Um, But I I take a different view on this whole question of market rate return and impact. You know, the the problems that we're facing right now are immediate. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm investing and can get 20 basis points more so that I have an extra few hundred thousand dollars in retirement, but my kids don't have access to clean water or we are in a situation where, you know, democracy has failed and there is social uprising and we are living through things like a pandemic, right? Like because of so much, so many structural inequities that face our world, like it's, it's not worth it. And so that's not to say that I that I think that these investments will underperform. I don't. I, I very much think that they will be strong performers. Mm-hmm. But it's also not what I'm I'm optimizing for. I'm optimizing for doing everything in my power to make sure that this world is better for my kids than it was for me. And I think in you know if I don't do that, I as a person as a mother have failed. It's a, it's a great way of, of looking at it. Do, do you have any final advice for somebody out there who's thinking about making this move? Yeah, I think just just do it, right? Just get ask the questions. You know, I think there are a lot of people who don't ask basic questions of their advisors, of whatever, wherever their money sits. What do I own? Where is my money sitting? Where is my money sleeping? Ask those basic questions, get the answers, and then you can decide if you're satisfied with those answers. But I think there is a very strange dynamic in the world of finance 
where people, if you don't work in finance, you feel like it's too opaque. Mm-hmm. It's very simple. You know, your money is going into support some sort of economic activity, and you can decide whether you support that economic activity or not. And if you don't, there are options to to change it. And I think that, you know, just asking those questions, getting the answers and understanding if you're comfortable with those answers will be the most important place to start. And if you're not comfortable, um, then there are a lot of people, a lot of tools, a lot of resources who can help you change the answer. And I, I think that's the, the best place to get started. Well, that's a, a great note to end on. Thank, thank you so much for taking the time. I learned a, learned a lot from, from hearing you talk about your own journey to an impact portfolio. Awesome. Thank you, Alex. Really appreciate you having me on and uh, excited to continue listening to your podcast. <laughs> Thanks, Beth. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Money and Meaning. I hope that you enjoyed the conversation with Beth Bafford of Calvert Impact Capital. And hopefully you have some practical takeaways that you can apply to your own portfolio to start aligning it with your values. As always, you can get in touch with me at moneyandmeaningpodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any topic ideas, questions, guest ideas, please don't hesitate to, to reach out. If you know anyone that you think would learn something from this conversation, would, would be interested, please share it with them and rate us five stars on, on Apple Podcasts. That always brightens our day over here. In two weeks, we'll be back with an episode with Joy Anderson of Criterion Institute, one of the founders and thought leaders in the field of gender lens investing. So I'm excited for that conversation with Joy. And we'll be back in two weeks with a new episode.